friends to Infertility and Me podcast, a safe space created with the silent sufferer in mind. I Am Podcast is dedicated to infertility advocacy and sharing diverse stories to help you feel validated, seen, and heard. I am your host, Monique Farouk, and I am one in eight two. Healing is best when done together. Hey friend, could you please do me the honor of leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple iTunes? This will increase our show's ranking and reach more friends who may be silently suffering with infertility too. We're stronger together, staying connected, getting plugged in. friends so much for tuning in to infertility and me podcast today's guest is stacy brown you can find her on instagram at stacy s-t-a-c-e-y underscore n as in nancy underscore the house she is an m-r-k-h advocate and she is going to be speaking to us about her diagnosis of m-r-k-h and what the future holds for her. But we're going to delve deeply into her diagnosis and how that tried inspired and when she got diagnosed and also what it was like just processing all of that. And so for those who do not know, MRKH, I am not even going to attempt to pronounce the correct term for MRKH in its entirety, but is it is a congenital disorder of the female reproductive system. Girls with MRKH have normal ovaries and fallopian tubes, an absent or incomplete vagina, no cervix, and either an underdeveloped uterus or uterine remnant or no uterus at all. Her body may produce eggs. She can have IVF to retrieve eggs but we'll still need a surrogate to carry for her. And you can find more information at rarediseases.org. Women with MRKH usually have no menses, and that is the first sign that something may be wrong, and usually uncomfortable sex as well. MRKH affects one in four to 5,000 in general, in the general population. Verywellhealth.com states that treatment to create vaginal death is available. Non-surgical options, which um, usually include dilators, and then the surgical option is a procedure vaginoplasty. Stacy was diagnosed in September of 2019 while also navigating the finals to complete her master's degree. So it's been over a little over a year for Stacy since she received her first diagnosis, well, she, since she received her diagnosis of MRKH. Stacy states, I didn't consider having kids until someone told me that I can't. And I thought that was really powerful. And I'm pretty sure there's many people out there that feel that way. And so Stacy will be with us in just a second. Thank you, friends. So thank you, Stacy girl, for coming on the podcast and speaking to us about this very rare disorder of your reproductive system. Um, I think it's incredible what you're doing and advocating for others like yourself. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. 
I know from just following your Instagram account and getting to know you through there that you were in the midst of your finals for your master's program when you were initially diagnosed. So tell me what was life like for Stacey leading up to that before the point of getting your diagnosis and what your symptoms were and just like what your life was in general. Ooh, yeah, that was <laughs> that was rough. So I thought I had a UTI and I had never had a UTI before. And so it's kind of like when you're experiencing that, you're like, oh my gosh, am I dying? And so I went to an OBGYN who was actually in the same building that my classes were in. And so I just, you know, I went to figure out what was going on and he was an older white male and he was just kind of like, you know, you're 25, you don't have a period yet. Let's figure out what's going on. And that was pretty much the gist of, I, I didn't really have symptoms. It was just the fact that I just, I never had a period of there was ever there was never any spotting none of that had ever occurred for me and so i was like right let me look into this so it was difficult being in school and trying to schedule an, an ultrasound and trying to schedule an mri appointment you know it was it was interesting because in the middle of my mri i was mm -hmm. pulled out and um, the nurse goes have you ever had a hysterectomy mm. and i'm like no, and, and that and that was all she said. And she walked away and I went like back into the tube. So I'm sitting there trying to figure out what like what are you even saying and what does she mean by that? Wow. And and so after all of that was done, the doctor that I had calls me in the middle of the day. Now mind you, we're in the same building. So he could have simply said like, hey, do you have some free time? Can you come up two floors mm -hmm. and have a conversation with me? Right, right. But instead he decides to tell me this over the phone and he starts it off with, so based on the MRI, based on the ultrasound, you don't have a vagina. Mm. Which is extremely confusing to, as to hear that from somebody mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and then not have an explanation around it. And he was like, yeah, there was something that was looked like it was developing in utero, but didn't develop all the way. And so I then asked him, like, so or do you mean I was born with that one? And he's like, oh, I can't answer that. Like, I don't I don't know. I have I don't I'm not sure. Um, and then he goes into, well, you already knew this. And I'm like, no, I went to go see a doctor when I was 18, had an ultrasound. She didn't see anything. And she simply said, oh, you're probably backed up. Let's try to come back and do this again. But there wasn't necessarily a follow up on it. Um, and then he threw surgery at me. And he's like, yeah, there's a surgery that is similar to a gender reassignment surgery. Um, and I know some people, and if you need anything, give me a call. And that was the gist of our conversation and finding this out in between classes and not knowing how to process it. And then I, I then went to another doctor. Mm -hmm. um, she was a female doctor who then officially gave me the diagnosis of MRKH. And that was a day before my final that that happened. So it was crazy. It was a lot of information all at once. And I 
it just they just it I, seems to me like they just dumped it they gave they they handed you your diagnosis with a trash can top yes yes that's exactly how it feels with no explanation with no empathy no time no empathy like he was very much so in a rush to just get this information to me and it was it was just it was a difficult a difficult time and I was in school so I didn't allow myself the time to process that information because I was I was just kind of like I have class and I have tests and I have finals and I, this isn't the right time for me to deal with this mm -hmm. until my body kind of forced myself to deal with it um, which was basically the day of my final uh, when all that happened. I want to backtrack for a minute because the first well, the really first concern doctor that you had when you were 18, never followed up with you, never did anything. No. And I, that baffles me. That's, right. And it, and I've, I've had to process that and forgive myself through that process as well, because finding out at 25 was such a, it was like, it completely just shifted my mindset about myself if I was a woman, just having the time to process everything. And so it it was kind of like, what if I kind of advocated for myself a little bit more as at 18 to really look into this? But I, I also had to realize that I was I was still a child yep. in that sense. Yep. Um, and so, and that's why I think it's important for doctors to know about that. So if excuse me so if anybody else is in that situation a doctor or a nurse or whoever will know about it um and address it accordingly mm, 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 mm. yeah i just it really breaks my heart to have been through it and to also hear the stories of other women and men like yourself who there's just oh no bedside manner no empathy yeah. sometimes from doctors and yeah. if you don't know well it almost sounds like the doctor was scared to tell you when the first time when you were 18 yes and yes. and and maybe they were like well what the heck is am i really seeing what i'm seeing and then it sounds like they were trying to process it too because it's something that they had never seen before and maybe right. just read about it in their their work their textbooks in school and just I guess never thought that they would come across it either. So that's a lot. That's a lot. So I could see how I could see how the processing never, never happened until after you got the second diagnosis, really. But really was your first diagnosis because he took the time to really do a full workup. And even though he was not empathetic to the way that he gave it to you, like, oh, my gosh, I could say so many things about that. But <laughs> it's so crazy. So yeah. the day that you got your diagnosis. You have all these finals going on for your master's program, getting ready to graduate, right? You said the last thing you said was you just continue to move on and get through your, your degree program because, you know, you had to walk across that stage. So paint me the picture of what it was like after you in the coming weeks and how you how did you press on? How did you do that? Did you just numb yourself to the, the diagnosis? I, I did. Mm -hmm. And I do not recommend that for anybody. Yeah. Um, but that's okay just though. Because it, yeah. Just because it you're you're suppressing these feelings that are eventually gonna show up anyway. Just because they're so heavy and they're so intense. 
and it's it's so much going on. I remember after my final, I like because we we had our final and then we had a break mm -hmm. um, before I came back home, but that allowed me to come back home and. I like sat after my final, I sat on the floor in the kitchen. I was sharing an apartment with my, with my two friends that were also in the program. And I cried like on the kitchen floor, super ugly crying, everything that I was feeling up to that point, like released. And I didn't, and it was like, I didn't have an option to ignore it anymore. Because mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't in, in class. I wasn't interacting with patients, interacting with my peers. It was just like a moment of stillness mm. that as much as I wanted to continue to avoid my emotions kind of forced me to, to deal with that. I was going to therapy at the time while I was in Chicago because I've always gone to a therapist and it's just always been important for me to have. And I kept telling her, like, MRKH has to go on a shelf right now. Like, mm. I have all these things going on. Like, I just, I have to put this on the shelf. I can't deal with this right now. And there would be these moments in therapy where I would cry. And she's like, you have to process this. Like, mm. you, like, this is a lot to deal with. This is a lot of information. And I was away from home. I wasn't around my family or my friends mm. that were back in, in Atlanta where I'm from. So it was... It was a very, it was a very painful time um, that I essentially tried to ignore, but was like, hey, I'm here. I'm showing up anyway, whether if you're ready or not for me, so. Mm. Mm -mm -mm. Wow. So I, like therapy, and, and that's such a big part of self-care for me. Okay. Um, just in terms of having somebody to talk to. So. That's amazing. That's amazing that you had that um, set up beforehand. So how was graduation, like that whole week preparing for graduation and this great accomplishment, but behind closed doors, you were dealing with all this, this sorrow and conflict. So my, I had a, I had a couple of months between like when I was diagnosed and graduation, but I was essentially extremely proud of myself and, and grateful because I, ooh, I don't know how in the world I made it through that. And uh, I think there were moments where I expected myself not to make it through and I wanted to give up. Um, mm -hmm. But I had people around me who were like, who were really rooting for me. Mm -hmm. um, and who were just like, hey, if you need to take a day, take a day. Like, if you need to take a break, do that. Like, and don't be so hard on yourself during this process. and. And that it's, you know, it's grades are such, I think we learn up to a certain point that grades are so important and then mm -hmm. you kind of get to graduate school and it's, it's more, it's less about grades and more about you actually learning the information, learning how to apply it. Um, yeah, yeah. Dealing with that and not letting grades hold such this heavy value of, of and determine my worth and my success or my failure. But I very proud of myself at the end when we, when we had graduation, because I feel like I could have gave up and it mm -hmm. would have been justified, mm -hmm. but I'm really just grateful to the people around me that didn't allow me to do that. What was the reaction of your mom, your dad, or however your family dynamic is? How, what was it like for the people closest to you and you had sitting them down and telling them your diagnosis in full detail? What was that like for you? I think it was definitely a surprise because 
MRKH is it's so rare that like right. when you hear about it and you and you hear exactly what it is that like you're born without a uterus. I like to say you have an underdeveloped vaginal canal okay. instead of a vagina because that's like something easier to process. And I think is they wanted to be there for me as much as they possibly could, and they were. But I I've learned over time that as much as I have to give myself grace with this diagnosis, I also have to give my family and my friends grace as well. Because sometimes you don't know the right thing to say. You Mm -hmm. don't know the wrong Mm -hmm. thing to say. Like you may not, and sometimes people are in, in such an emotional place that they can't necessarily show up for you how you want them to. Yeah. And sometimes it, it takes telling somebody what you need as well. But I just, I'm very grateful for my family because they're especially my my brother and my sisters because they I'm the oldest and they were able to just show up for me like if I was having a rough day and I was just crying they would just hug me Mm. and there was like there was no need for explanation it was no trying to get me to to verbalize how I was feeling it was it was simply just just giving you that space just holding that space for you just Mm -hmm. holding yeah just holding that space for me and just being there and being present yeah but yeah and I'm, I'm pretty sure they're going through a grieving process as well, just as I am. You know, I'm the oldest and, and this whole idea of grandchildren, and you have these, these ideas and these expectations. Mm-hmm. And so just having to process that as well, is, it's probably hard for them too. Yeah, yeah. And I, in your recent video that you did on Instagram with one of your poems and your spoken words, you stated in your, dis- in your disclosure video that you were angry with God and understandably so and so being someone who has faith and is spiritual what were some of the things you asked God when you first got your diagnosis or just in the last year of like fully processing everything and trying to heal emotionally I think it's a it's a constant question of why me mm-hmm. why did I have to find out at 25 like like why did I have to find out in between graduate school and I had all these things going on and if God has planned my life from beginning to end, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like why was MRKH a part of that plan? And um, but I am, I am learning that God can handle my anger because even in my anger, He still shows me His grace, His love, and His mercy, and that He still blesses me. And that there is no amount of anger that I can have with God that will push Him away. I am still able to feel his hand and his presence in my anger and, and in my pain. But it, it is it is a, a consistent thing of where I feel like, okay, I reconcile with God and then something else comes up. The, like the holidays come up and then mm-hmm. those, those emotions kind of come back again. But I've just, I've allowed myself to be angry with God. Mm-hmm. Just because I know that that is something that's an important thing for me to process, you know, for to that will help me to build a, a relationship with him in the end. Have you? I know you mentioned some surgeries that are available in a few minutes ago, but are you considering doing any surgeries in the future? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I've had, like, growing up, I've had five surgeries. I was for different reasons, like when I was in a car accident. I was born unable to extend my arms all the way, so I've had surgeries for that as well. Wow. Um, 
So I just, I don't know if surgery will make me happy. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know that if that is something I decide to do, I want to make that decision for myself. Um, and I want to be comfortable with that decision. I want to know that's the best thing for me. And something I didn't feel necessarily pressured into or, mm-hmm. or just like getting it just because I'm, I'm worried that I will never be able to have like an intimate relationship with, with you know, a guy that I meet in the future. Just, just those things. Um, yeah. That, right are now. you scared of dating? Yes and no. Because mm-hmm. um, dating, like, already is hard. Like, mm-hmm. outside of having MRKH. And I think, I don't know how healthy this is, but, I, like, if I met a guy on Tinder and he would, you know, ask me about kids or or have want to have a conversation about sex, I would just kind of, I would let them know that I had MRKH. I honestly never really i didn't get a negative response like it was always like oh wow that's that's really interesting but it was easier to deal with guys on tinder because i didn't have an emotional connection with them Mm. because it's it's kind of like if you decide that this doesn't work out for you i haven't like i don't really really like you to that point where if you leave i could be like okay whatever right the emotional attachment yeah it's it's not there and I've, I've also tried to look at dating differently in terms of, especially when it comes to MRKH, that they are allowed to have a choice and that choice isn't a reflection of me or my diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're, they're allowed not to want to continue to build a relationship with me um, because of this, simply as like, I have choices of, of what guy I like or what guy I don't like mm-hmm. or who I mm-hmm. want to pursue or not. So it's, that's how I try to look at it instead of taking it so personally because it's, I mean, it's already difficult dating without it and taking everything personally because you, you want this person to like you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, that's how I'm, I'm trying to view dating. I am open to it. So, mm-hmm. and I, and I don't want and my page to get in the way of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's, it's important during this time, especially now that I process all of those insecurities I have about myself before I then take that into a relationship of like not feeling like a woman or I have a love-hate relationship with my body. Like it, mm-hmm. it goes up and down. So just dealing with those things before I allow somebody else to in. I think I'm still figuring out what intimacy for me is mm-hmm. and that it could be more than something sexual Yeah, and that intimacy can show up in different ways, what I like or what I don't like or what I expect from a person. Prior to my diagnosis, I was just like, I wanted to wait until I was married to have sex just because I'm an emotional person. Mm-hmm. I know me. like. If I have sex with you and you decide to leave the next day, it's gonna be a whole Lisa left eye situation. Like, it's gonna yeah, crazy. yeah. I, I get it. I yeah. know. I like. I know I'm that type of person, but I have definitely like. I'm. I like to be held. I like to be kind of type of person. Like, mm-hmm. so those are mm-hmm. forms of intimacy that I have been able to have in and cherish. That yeah. 
weren't necessarily sexual. And I think the sexual intimacy comes with me feeling comfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And definitely disclosing with whoever guy I'm with that, hey, this is what I have, this is what I have going on prior to before you get to that point because I want to be a hundred I want to be hundred percent comfortable with you and I think it goes back to me feeling sexy as a woman because mm-hmm. that can then reflect when I'm with a guy and in those intimate moments so then like I myself feel confident going into these so I think I think that's the the biggest thing for me, I think it's a mixture of confidence. I think it's a mixture of what you feel comfortable with and a mixture of, of disclosure between you and your partner. Yeah. With the help of your counselor, how are you dealing with the self-image and self-esteem aspect with your diagnosis? And then, you know, as you stated with dealing with relationships, like being a woman, it's hard already. You know, we have all these insecurities that we develop over time and so I can imagine that the diagnosis didn't make it any better in the beginning uh, not necessarily now uh, after you've had a year to really delve into your healing journey and stuff so what's been your experience and how are you coping and navigating the feeling beautiful and feeling sexy and not feeling like half a woman you know what I mean I think it's the biggest thing is me being honest with myself and my feelings. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was first diagnosed, like, I would love to put on a crop top or a sundress, and I, like, I couldn't put any of that on because I didn't feel sexy. Mm-hmm. Or I didn't feel, I didn't feel feminine, and I, it felt like someone could look at me and tell that I didn't have a uterus. Wow. Um, and I think even now, it's feeling like my body made a decision for me and without me wow um and and being angry with that and feeling shame about that and like and and being angry with my body i recently wrote like a thank you letter to my body just because there's there's so many other things that my body can do and sometimes you get so caught up and focused on this this thing that your body can't do very like big major thing Mm. And I think it's it's been a consistent process of loving myself through MRKH in every stage of it. Okay. And the holidays, the Mother's Day, the like the infertility awareness weeks, just those type of mm. types of things. Been me reminding myself that I am so beautiful, that I am worthy, that I am still a woman, and also redefining what a woman is. Mm-hmm. Like. I feel like it becomes this, what a woman is, and this is what a woman is supposed to be able to do. And if you're not able to do that, then you're less than. Yeah. And so changing that narrative for myself and also realizing that there is, I feel like there's always this rush to be okay or there's this rush to get to better or easier. Mm. And there is nothing easy about MRKH or infertility. At all. (laughs) At all, (laughs) y'all. You guys know this. (laughs) Yes, it's nothing easy. And and also, it's kind of like, what in the world is easy? What in the world is okay? What in the world is better? And how do I measure my success or my failure of being able to get to that point? (laughs) You just said a mouthful right there, girl. 
That's a word. That is a word today. Okay. What is it? What is it even? What is even all of this? What is life? What is time, y'all? Yes. <laughs> what is time? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, what is even time? You know? Yes. And I think, no. girl, and we place so much pressure on ourselves in our gender roles. And there's no doubt about when looking at you that you are the woman, the goddess, the mother, the creator, the, the everything, right? But yes. because you have this missing piece of you physically, I can imagine how you begin to question gender, you know, and your role and how it's going to look moving forward. But to me, when I see you, you know, I don't see anything other than, you know, a queen, a goddess, the, 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 the woman who has the potential to be the mother, to be a mother. You know what I mean? With advanced yeah. med- uh, medicine and, and such. And so I just think it's so funny how when we get diagnoses, we it's almost like we take away what we saw in ourselves before. Like when you were saying that, you know, you were the girl that, that wore the crop top, that wore the short shorts and that wore the badass bikini at the beach or at the pool or something like that. And then once you got your diagnosis, you like took that away from yourself, you know? And I think, I think we just got to stop doing that shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> like how we gotta, we gotta stop doing that to ourselves. And yeah placing ourselves in such a compartmentalized box like we're much bigger than this you know it's almost like what the bible says about god and god saying that my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways meaning that who i am and what i am is much bigger than your than your human mind can comprehend and so i think we have to start and we have to remember that we are a part of that you know we we are we are attached to everything that is in this universe and that who we are is much bigger than anything that we see this physical body because we're spirits first right Right. Yeah. And just getting back to that through all of this bullcrap and this unfairness that genetics and in life gives us sometimes these lemons, you know, and not necessarily finding the silver lining, but learning how to navigate through all of the issues that life can bring. And um, yeah, it's it's a journey. It's a journey, it it's whether a journey. you are infertile or fertile. Right. Yeah. Even with the scripture you just said, I always say to myself mm-hmm. that my pain has a purpose and my purpose is bigger than my pain. Yeah. So even the amount of pain that MRKH has caused, I know that there is something within it that is way bigger than me and that I have no idea how big it is. I have no idea how God is going to use this, how God is going to use me. And that at the end of this, like my body can be a part of my testimony. And that, and that is like gives me another chance and opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Yeah, I think we just have to. We gotta do work for us, you know. Yeah, yeah. Every, I mean, even just self care. Like sometimes you watch a video or read something and it doesn't work for you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the affirmations just don't work that way. Yeah. And like that's fine. Definitely would say like not to rush it and not to rush the process. Because like you said, it's a journey. And if you could say one thing to another sister out there who may be suffering from MRKH or just infertility in general, like if you could say a few things to them, what would you say? I would say over and over again that you are worthy, that you are so beautiful, that you have 
this way of taking something extremely painful and turning it into something beautiful. And you have this strength about you that not a lot of people know that you have. There are a lot of silent sufferers, but find a community, find people who can support you and who can care about you. Take it one day at a time and love yourself through each process and give yourself grace through each process. And grace can look different for different situations. Sometimes you may need something that works one day and something different works another day, but um, just continue to love yourself. Continue to remind yourself how beautiful you are and that at the end of this, there, there is a purpose that is that is within this and that sometimes you just don't know about it yet. Beautiful, Stacey, thank you. Thank you. For sharing your, your, your story so bravely and advocating on social media for others in the community, infertility, Black women, brown women, women in general, MRKH advocacy, and, you know, this is not easy, so I commend you for your bravery. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was, I enjoyed this so much. And thank you, friends, for listening to Infertility and Me podcast. Peace and blessings.